You're listening to a DM podcast. And I was just so, so cold. I was just shuddering. I couldn't control the shudders. I was so cold. And one of the ladies had um, bought a, a beanie while they were in Flinders Ranges and sort of put that on my head. And they were trying to keep me warm. <laughs> and I can remember one of them saying, oh, the best way is the body warmth. That keeps me on. i thinking, oh, no, we're not going to go there, are we? Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. There are many people who embark on four-wheel driving in the Australian outback each year, and a large number of people sign up for tours where they're with a bunch of others, travelling vast distances, camping together, and with a guide who can direct the group and manage things if they get into a bit of a pickle. In April of last year, Shirley was on one of these four-wheel drive tours in outback South Australia on the Birdsville track when things didn't go to plan, and Shirley was actually lucky to survive. Hello, Shirley. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Now, you live in Adelaide, right, Shirley? Um, I live at Victor Harbour, which is 80 kilometres south of Adelaide on the coast there on Fleurieu Peninsula. Have you always lived there? No, no. I'm originally born and bred in Melbourne and at about um, 21 years of age, I left with a partner and we decided we were going to travel around Australia and we got as far as we did New South Wales, Victoria, fruit picking, all sorts of things. And we got as far as Penong on the far west coast of South Australia, where my partner had previously done fencing, roo shooting, etc., etc. And we we um, stayed there for 10 years, then he left. That's where my two girls were born and he left leaving me with the two girls. So I'm used to the outback areas, remote areas, because remember Penong is out of council areas. There's no council out there. Is that where you got your travel bug from, from doing those first travels as a, as a young adult? I've always had a very keen interest in Australian history. I can remember at high school um, doing a project on Birkenwills and it was always on my bucket list from a teenage, I've got to go and see the dig tree. So my partner at that time who had done remote travelling over in the Nullarbor, we bought our first four-wheel drive together, um, did a bit of remote travel out there. Um, we did the Birdsville track back in the 70s, would you believe? But yeah, I think it's my avid interest in Australian history that's really prompted that outback full drive travel. Mm. And are you a photographer as well, I understand? I love photography, yes, and that's probably one of the main reasons I like the outback, um, especially the full drive, because having a full drive, it will get you to 
places off the beaten track where you get the colours, the wildlife, the flowers. Um, it, it's just um, unique in itself. I think you either love it or the, hate the outback. So when you're out travelling over past decades, Shirley, are you the kind of person that just pulls out a swag and, and camps by the side of the road or finds a little spot and and then moves on the next day? Or are you the full-on four-wheel drive camping experience with, you know, stove and kitchen and, <laughs> and the whole works? Like are you a, the simple side or the, the more, I, I don't know, the more luxurious side if there is a luxurious side of four-wheel driving? No, I'm. I'm the former. I'm the simple side at the moment. It's pull out your swag. I know my kids are horrified sometimes when they know the places I've camped, but sometimes I find you can be out in the middle of nowhere and you feel safer out there than what you do roaming the streets of the city. The isolation doesn't worry me. What what do you love about those landscapes, Shirley? The landscapes, it's the colour, um, the endless horizons, night time, it, it's the stars, um, it's the colour, um, the different seasons and the, the colour and the wildlife and flowers that the different seasons produce as well. And it's the freedom, I think, being out there. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Now, you were um, just a, a year and a bit ago, you were doing a tag-along tour along the Birdsville track. Could you describe what a tag-along tour is and how it works? The tag-along tours, you can scan through the internet and you sort of pick out where you would like to go. I have a map of Australia where I have been and a lot of these tag-along tours now, it's like I'm filling in this gap and most of it is remotely. When you look at a map of Australia, there's big, big areas in the middle where there aren't any roads. So I look for the safety of tag-alongs. I'm simply travelling by myself. It gives me a security. Um, Usually the guides have a lot of knowledge in that area. They can take you the places where the like um, the individual probably wouldn't find by themselves but mainly I go for the security of going with taglongs in those really really remote areas. Do you have to bring all of your own food for each meal or are there uh, set places where you might be at a, a remote pub or something like that like how does it work in terms of meals? Most of these tag-alongs, you have to be self-sufficient. So I have an angle fridge. I pre-pack all these frozen meals, and this goes along with travel simply. Um, a lot of people go the opposite and have their flour and make their damper and blah, 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 all, all together. But a majority of the tag-alongs, you take all your own food. You're responsible for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If you pull into, say, Mount Dare, it'll be a bonus get-together, have meals together. Um, there's only one tour that I've been where it was catered for and it was just amazing, absolutely amazing that you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've got these five-star meals, three-course meals, but that was only one that has done that. But all the others, you take everything yourself. And it's not just for the length of the tour, um, which could be up to 19 days. It is that plus in case you get caught out there. Mm. And how can you get caught? Is that because roads are blocked or washed away or or cars break down or what are the things that could cause a tour to be delayed? 
a combination of a few things. Most of the full drives, the tag-alongs, we don't leave anyone behind. So maybe I've come across where they've um, broken axle, they've done their diff, which holds you up for a day or two days. We've come across motor, uh, motorbike riders who have come off their bike and actually we've had to get them to the nearest place to call on the RFDS there. So will hold you up. Um, it could be the weather, inclement weather. Um, it's nothing worse than going all the way a Madigan line and find the air creeks flooded and you've got to turn around and go all the way back again, which is doubling the length of your trip. So it's the unknown. So you've got to be prepared just in case. So it's not just yourself. It can be other people you meet, which the old thing, you don't leave anyone behind. Hmm, it's very wise. Do you get to know everybody that's within the group over the course of the travel? Like is it a very communal and, and um, social activity? Um, yes and no. Most of the tag-alongs, they're on a pretty tight um, time frame. So I, my routine is you get up in the morning, you check your um, oil, you check your air filter, check your tyres. By the time you have breakfast, roll up your swag, put it in. Everyone wants to borrow your air presser to check their tyre pressures. Um, probably the main communal thing would be at night time. Um, some tours like to pull up at four o'clock, get your campfire together and after, after your meals, then all gather around the campfire. So you've got limited time to form those friendships. The only time you would probably find it if you pull into, say, Inaminka and you have a, a meal all together. Yeah. And what's the average age of those? Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm just talking about the one tour that you did, but is is it majorly grey nomads or people in their older years who've just decided that's it, I want to get out and explore this country? Or is it a younger demographic who just have the travel bug like you when you were younger and, and just want to explore and, and do that with a group of others? A big cro- cross section. It goes anywhere. I used to look at myself, and I was probably getting on the older age group to go across, especially female by themselves too, which surprised a few people. But I've had twenty-year-old couples, thirty-year-old couples, forty-year-olds, fifty-year-olds couples who, like you said, well, we've always wanted to do this, but the security of the tag along with experienced people because they're usually mechanically qualified as well. So it's a real, real cross-section, not Mm. so many on the grey nomad side. They're usually the ones who pull a caravan along and stick to the bitumen and maybe ditch the caravan or caravan and do little tours around. So the majority of it would be, I would put it maybe 40 to 50s, even 60s perhaps. Yeah, sounds amazing. Um, It's on my list. (laughs) And I think fitness comes into that as well. And how's that? Because it's fairly physically demanding in terms of – I was actually going to ask you about the season. I presume you don't do this in summer because those those parts of the desert can get so hot in an Australian summer. Most of them, the desert ones, they wait till the roads open. Simpson Desert opens at the end of the March, so you can't travel the – summer months anyway. The canning stock route, it's usually you wait till the um, the floods have died down and the roads are open. Simply you, you'll just get bogged on the lake. So a lot of it depends on 
what the summer seasons have been. Um, the other alternative, when it comes summer, people head mm. to, which I've done before, the high country in Vic- Victoria. That's, that's your summer four-wheel drive in the high country. Um, so that's the alternative route, if you like, four-wheel drive. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is. It is quite quite stunning. Yeah. Have you ever, in all of your travels through Australia, have you ever had to um, call on the flying doctor or call on others because you've gotten lost or or run into car trouble or anything like that? No, I've been very fortunate over the years. Even some of the um, travels by myself, I've I've never. <laughs> I suppose you get a bit blasé and. In hindsight now, I can look back and think, oh, my God, how come I even got there? But it doesn't go through your mind or it did at that stage. Probably I have second thoughts now. But I'm always aware of the Royal Flying Doctor that they're there. You see it on the airstrips, on the air highway where it's just on on the bitumen there. Um, the clinics at the most remote Areas you find you have this little thing there with RA, uh, RFDS sign there, and it's like, oh my god, they actually there. I think Tarkula was one place I saw it there. Breaking down, it's one of the the must. And being traveling by myself, I have to be one hundred and ten percent vehicle prepared compared with a normal person traveling by herself and being female. So I always have my vehicle checked by a re- reputable four drive. Uh, mechanic before I go and carry numerous spares, numerous spares just in case. I presume you're pretty good at changing a tyre, Shirley. <laughs> pretty good at changing a tyre. I have a set of on-road tyres for the bitumen and every time I go for a, a trip, I change every one of those onto my Mickey Thompson tyres before a trip. I've had some of the guys say, really, you, da- you do that yourself? I said, yep, I have to, to be able to do it myself. Oh, good on you. Good on you. And do you always go by yourself in your car, Shirley, or do you take family and friends with you at times? No, I've always done it by myself. I mean, those are long hours in the car. Do you listen to music? Do you listen to podcasts? Or do you just enjoy the long drives and those amazing landscapes? Um, the latter, I don't have any tapes in the car. I don't have any podcasts. Um, it's just driving long. Um you listen to what's seeing and I'm always on the lookout um, looking where I'm going. So, and it's if I can get away with, with some of the um, tag alongs, if I know I'm a bit of head one behind me, I'll stop, quickly jump out in 10 seconds, take take quick photos if there's a lizard or something that catches your eye and then you've got to quickly jump back in your car and catch up before they catch up. So, no, I've, I'm not one with music tapes or anything like that, but I know a lot of people, they stock up before they actually go. But, no, I just enjoy being out there. You must be um, a person who is very comfortable just with their own space and time, Shirley. I'm getting there, but I, I don't know that I would be able to do 10, 12, 18, 19 days in a car by myself driving long distances. I think I would crave that social connection. Um, but many, and it sounds like you're one of those persons, are very happy to just be within the solitude of and, and with your own company, be happy with your own company. To a certain extent, I can cope with my own company thing, but there's a times where you do need other company there. And that's one thing I like about travelling mm. by myself. In the city, I would never go to the hotel by myself. I very rarely go out dinners by myself. But when you're in the outback... I don't have any qualms 
going to the front bar of the pub, sitting there having a drink. It's um, I, I don't know how to explain it, but there's you, you don't have that social distinction when you go out there like you do in the city. And I think that's my it's a comfort zone being out there. People are so much different. Yeah. Um, they really, really are. Um, like I said, I wouldn't do it in the city by myself. I I hesitate to put my foot in the door. But those outback pubs, um, very welcoming, very welcoming and chat and they don't care if you're female by yourself. There's no discrimination. It just breaks down the barriers when you're out there. That's true, isn't it? Really inclusive. Yeah, that's fantastic, Shirley. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Now, let's go to that fateful day uh, back in April of last year. Now, you were travelling the Birdsville track. Where had you been? Where had the tour taken you to? And were you on your way back or were you on your way out? Uh, would you believe it was the first day of the tag long coming from south of Adelaide? The the meeting point was at Maree, which is um, one and a half days trip just to get to Maree. But prior to that, I'd, I'd left Adelaide about four days before. So I'd been in Spencer Gulf, I've been Port Broughton, and I've done a lot of little side bits before I even hit Maree. So on that first night of the trip, we had meet and greet at the um, at the Maree Hotel where I met the other visitors. And it was one of, another thing on my bucket list. I wanted to sleep in the first floor in my room at Maree Hotel, which is where I was, where some of the others just camped um, outside the camping ground there. So that first night was the meet and greet. I'd spoken to the um, tour operators and, and the tour I was doing, it was going straight up the Hay River track, which I hadn't done that. That was a little gap on my map that I wanted to fill in. So the first day was a meet and greet and then we had headed off next morning. So from Maree, we um, went out west to Lake Air South, um, had a look around there, came back, fueled, fueled up at Maree and then started heading north from there. And how were you feeling that day? Were you physically feeling good or were you a little under the weather? No, I was fine. I might have been a bit stressed out, you know, um, city crap. And that's why I left a bit earlier. And yeah, I was fine just traveling, catching up and everything. Um, tea at the, at the pub, no big deals. Um, just normal thing. Um, check the vehicle. Um, had a chat to some of the others in a, in their, uh, four wheel drive. Some were from Sydney, a big majority from Sydney, just chat, chat, chat. Guys by themselves. There's some ladies by themselves in a high 
via four-wheel drive. So no, no different to any other trip I'd been on. So walk me through what happened. So you, the whole tour arrived in Mungarani and I think everybody initially went to the pub to have a feed and, and have a little bit of hydration. Did you go along with everybody to that or did you hang around to set stuff up first? We pulled into Mang- Mungarani and I knew the publican feel, feel there. I'd worked there for um, about 12 months before. Uh, prior to help out. So I knew Phil from a couple of occasions. So we pulled in here about half past two in the afternoon and I sort of just pulled up in the in the driveway there near the, the pumps and went in, hi, how are you, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And the others went to um, around the edges of the scrub, they're setting up camps. And I looked and I thought, oh, my God, my car's in the middle of the, the grounds there. I better go and shift it and find myself a camping spot. So I shifted my four-wheel drive, found a camping spot, and then I walked back over and um, had a chat with Phil. So by then it was maybe three, four o'clock, and anyone who knows Phil was, here, here, have a glass of wine. I'm not a big drinker at the best of days, especially wine. I thought, yep, I'll have a thing. And, and the others were sort of wandering in and out, having a look at Mungarani and heading back out again. And um, then Phil come up with a second one. And I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have a second one. It is mid-afternoon. I haven't really had lunch. Uh, so I had that and then I went over and started setting up um, camps. I put down my ground mat, set up the stretch and headed back over there because people were going over to order meals, etc. So I went and thought, I'll, I'll order and then went back to my uh, where I'd set up. So my stretcher was set up and I got my swag out and laid it out on the on the um, stretcher, which was beside my four-wheel drive. And, and then I thought, something's not right. I was starting to flail, like grab onto things, like unsteady feet. And it's a different feeling to when you might be under the weather. It, it's different. It was very determined things, grabbing everything. And last I can remember was sliding down on the ground and – over the period of time, I can remember thinking, gee, I'm getting cold. I should really head into that swag and keep warm. And then I'd just fade out again. And then it wasn't really, really late in the night. It was dark by then. And I could hear some voices just vaguely saying, Shirley. And I mumbled something. They came around the front of the car and they found me on the dirt. And after that, I can't – the next thing I can remember was waking up in one of the units in bed at the um, Mungrani Hotel. How I got there, I have no no idea. I understand that they actually uh, – those people that came across you there next to your four-wheel drive and lying in the dirt unconscious picked you up and carried you over to the Mungrani Hotel where they've got little cabins and they – they popped you into one of those cabins and called the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And uh, you were in and out of consciousness. They didn't know what was happening with you, but they knew that something was really wrong. Do you remember at all coming to in the cabin um, and being spoken to? 
I can remember waking up in the bed in in the cabin and two of the ladies from Sydney were there and I was just so, so cold. I was just shuddering. I couldn't control the shudders. I was so cold. And one of the ladies had um, bought a a beanie while they're in Flinders Ranges and sort of put that on my head and they were trying to keep me warm. (laughs) And I can remember one of them saying, oh, the best way is the body warmth. That keeps me warm. I think, oh, no, we're not going to go there, are we? But I can remember saying to him because I was talking about calling the um, RFDS and I was saying, no, I'm fine. I really am fine. All I need is a cup of tea, a sweet cup of tea, and, and I'll be fine. I'll be there with you next morning to take for the next leg of the trip. The more they said something, the more I'd say that. And then I can remember the, the daughter of the tour leader sort of saying, hmm, I don't think so. But her concern was you'd been unconscious for three hours. There's something missing. We are calling them. Whether you feel good or not, we are calling them. And I think that was her first aid kicking yeah. in. If I hadn't have been unconscious for three hours, um, might be either way, but she's not. That that's not good. Now, Shirley, the temperatures in the desert really get low. So, what sort of temperatures were you lying in for three hours? Well, I was still in my sleeveless, like t-shirt, singlet top, and shorts, and I'd taken my boots off. So. During the day, it's quite warm, but it was dropping. Once the sun goes down, it drops, and I think this is probably why I was so, so cold when when they found me. And as I said earlier, I can remember looking at my swag with my sleeping bag thinking, I'm cold, I should get in there to keep warm, but I just couldn't couldn't make it and just, no, I'm just staying where I am. I'm more comfortable on the ground. Yeah. Now, Mungarani is a long way from, from metro areas. So it's actually 850 kilometres just from Adelaide. Um, and that's a, like a 10 and a half hour drive by road if, if the road's good. And so a plane flight is several hours to land on that small airstrip there at Mungarani. Uh, do you remember the Royal Flying Doctor Service arriving in the cabin? I can remember them arriving with their big, big bags of stuff. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And I can remember the pilot coming in. He was a really, really tall guy and he's trying to get a stretcher through the door. So I can remember them all arriving with all their gear because the cabin rooms aren't that big. There's a bed and in the space either side and that was about it. So I can remember them arriving and I can still say to him, I'm fine. I, I really am fine because I really felt like I was wasting their time because you, you read about the Royal Flying with these accidents and major things. Something here's me. I've, I've just, I don't know, I've just got lost conscious. No big deal because I've always been healthy and I've always been, there was nothing untoward when I left for the trip um, to give me any warning signs or anything. It's just another trip. So, Shirley, how did you explain in your own head how you came to be unconscious for three hours? Like, you weren't worried at all about what was happening. You were just asserting, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. You sound yeah. very much like um, the, the typical Aussie that just says, she'll be right, it's okay, leave me alone. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right and that's what I was saying to him. Look, I really am, I'm fine, just give me a cup of tea, a sweet cup of tea. That's all I need and a biscuit perhaps and I'll be fine because I was still aware that I really didn't have a big lunch and it was middle of the afternoon when we 
when we pulled in there and, and the wine I, sh- I know I should have shouldn't have had it but it's look let that wear off give me a cup of tea I'll have a sleep and everything will be fine but I really didn't think that was anything serious mm. it didn't even dawn on me and I felt really embarrassed that they've come all this way out for me <laughs> well we've learned from the Royal Flying Doctor Service doctor Jess Martin and the nurse Chris Green who were there that day to come and pick you up we learned that your heart then actually stopped and apparently you went sort of an ashen gray color and then yeah your heart just stopped and and in Chris's words you flatlined and they had to use CPR to bring you back and they got you back and and had that going and then again your heart stopped and they had to do it twice it then took a little bit for them to stabilize you and make sure you were okay to to be flown to Adelaide i presume you don't remember any of that what 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 was your next memory of of what happened next i'm presuming it must have been when you arrived in Adelaide. I can remember when I was lying on bed and feeling nausea and once again feeling embarrassed that I'm going to make a mess some, somewhere. I remember Chris said, just just lean over, just just do it. And uh, after that, and I just came back and, and I can remember just fading out and everything just going blank. So I assume at that time is when, well, when everything stopped. The first time when that happened, I can remember Chris yelling out because at this stage, the doctor couldn't find anything wrong. All the vitals were fine, et cetera, et cetera. And I can remember her leaving the cabin room, going to have a cup of tea, ready to fly me, blah, 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 and saying, you're right, Chris, yes, everything's fine, blah, blah, blah. And that's when the first flat line kicked in because I can remember Chris yelling out to it, Jess, Jess, and come flying back in. And that's when pandemonium went, I think, from there. But I can just remember coming to again and then same thing, bit nausea and fading out again, and that would have been – the second one but in hindsight the funny funniest pose oh my god when I got back my new pair of bras I had to cut and my new t-shirt had to cut <laughs> but it's just part and parcel and I can remember saying everyone had to leave the route because more a privacy thing because I can remember someone at the doorway li- you know looking in by then you know I was like, ready to put the CPR and everything was cut away from a chest yeah, um, yeah you, you can see the fun- well funny side of it humorous side yeah yeah, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? Uh, we have to, you know, sacrifice the the nice bra and the t shirt for the defibrillator to have room to get in. I can remember them trying to get me out of the room because, like I said, it was only a small room. They're trying to get a stretcher out. So by then they would have got me on the stretcher to remove me to try and get me to the plane. And I can remember saying, I'm falling, I'm sliding off. But the tall pilot, he was still standing one night one side of me and I said he won't let this roll off he's got his body weight there because they've actually had to tip the the put the stretcher sort of into getting vertical and on the side to get it out the door because they're so long wow but I can remember them um getting me on the back of the open tray on the back of someone's four-wheel drive and in hindsight I heard they had to use strap snatch them straps to tie me down on the back and then one of the looks is who's going to drive because coming from the pub at that hour of the night everyone would be drinking yeah <laughs> so it's who's and I can remember coming along it was really really bumpy driving out the airport and I can remember saying hang on a minute stop there's a road train coming down the road 
<laughs> and then uh, vaguely remember getting on the plane and was saying, look, do you want to ring anyone? Do you re- want to ring anyone? And by then I was a bit, I think it was starting to kick in then that things were serious. And I said, look, I just want to ring my girls. I just want to talk to my daughters, which um, Jess was, she said, what's the number? I said, I don't know. It's on speed dial. So by that time they'd found my phone and rang through to my daughter in Adelaide. Mm. Were you worried at that point that, like it had actually sort of hit you that you were really in, in a lot of trouble? I think it only hit home when I was getting on the plane because when you're lying in familiar like the cabins, etc. But getting onto the the plane, it's this is serious now. Otherwise, they wouldn't be flying me out. And I think that's when I literally started to break down. Then it's like I just want to talk. Sorry, <laughs> chase me up now. I just want to talk to my girls because I really okay. didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, no, I can understand that completely. Quite scary. And I think what's um, what started his home is, oh my god. My four-wheel drive is still here. My car is still here. My my gear is still here. It's just everything's just left. I think um, they put um, my handbag on on my um, belly, so I had something there. But it's like, oh my god, I'm I'm getting separated from my vehicle, etc. That that's when everything started to um, mm. hit home. I think. So they they flew you back to Adelaide. What did the doctors say when when you actually arrived? What were you told? Well, as we were coming into Adelaide on the plane, I sort of came to and um, Chris said, so how are you feeling? I said, well, oh, I don't know. I'm, you know, my chest is a bit sore. He said, oh, that's probably where I gave you CPR. You might have a, um, a crap rib or two, but that's where CPR. So Jess was really good uh, ahead of time um, coming into the RAH. She said, no, you're not going through emergency. You're going straight to cardiology. So I short-circuited straight into there. So as we came, into um, REH because I remember leaving the airport um, and the handover, I remember them handing over and the siren going as we were going through all the traffic lights getting to the RAH um, and in the um, when met the cardiologist it's like they just want to know what happened, Jess had handed over all her notes, everything, they did all the checks on the heart, they put me on the heart monitor overnight, um, didn't find anything wrong with the heart you know, I got the all clear. They sort of recommended oh, getting a pacemaker in, et cetera, et cetera. And then the more they were talking about it because they couldn't find anything wrong with the heart, even though it had stopped. There was a second one that came in and I was sort of questioning and said, well, there's nothing wrong with the heart. Would a pacemaker make any difference? Because it wasn't the heart that shut down, it's the vasovagal um, in your head that when your body's under stress just starts to shut everything down because the last thing that shuts down is your heart or your lungs and that's when my body just went sorry had enough I um I should have known I'm not a great water drinker when I'm away either so probably the wine on a a body that doesn't drink a lot of water. You must remember I've been on the road for four days before I even hit Marie. Um, so it's dehydrated the wine and my brain was just saying, sorry, <laughs> you're under stress, we're shutting down. 
So, yes, I haven't had a pacemaker, nothing wrong with the heart. That, that's amazing because I've done actually an interview with a, a man who um, lives and works in Unadatta and he had uh, his heart stop several times and it was purely from lack of hydration. It was dehydration that caused it. So is that what they essentially concluded in the end, Shirley, that yep. that's what had caused the problem? Yes, you, you're correct. And like I hear of it, like 10 years ago, or might have been 2013 it was, I was driving over Air Peninsula. It was a 44-degree day. I thought I'd do the, done the right thing. I'd done the dive of the tuna at Port Lincoln, stopped at Ellison, had a coffee, and my next leg was um, Streaky Bay, then on to Sejuna where I'd lived before. So I thought stopping for a break and a coffee and 44-degree day. See, I'm not a water drinker. And I would say it's the same thing. Um, I wasn't tired. I just blacked out and I actually flipped my car, wrote my car off and ended up in Streaky Bay Hospital. But the these emergency doctors then said it was dehydrated. I said, but I had a coffee. He said, no, that is probably the worst thing. It is water you have to have. So a big lesson learned. Like they tell you all the time how many litres of water you are supposed to drink. I know a friend of mine is horrified to think that I have to force myself to drink 600 mils of water a day. He goes through like two litres two full litres a day at least. So, yeah, that dehydration plays a big, big part in travelling out back. Hard lesson to learn. Shirley, Shirley, you are a serial offender. I am. On not drinking enough. Have you changed your ways? Have you? Are you now actually forcing yourself to drink more water? I do. I have um, a water bowl in the passenger side door, the driver side door, one in the console in the middle, and I buy um, a dozen pack that sits in the back, and, and literally I do. Right, you are drinking this before lunchtime. You are drinking – because I don't drink this much that much water when I'm at home even. Um, so, yes, I – when I travel, it's I have to have this one empty and I have to have that one empty. Good on you. That's great. So has this has this whole thing changed your perspective on life in any way, Shirley? I think it comes and a lot of people say the thing is take something like this to realize that anything can happen at any time. So make the, make the most of the time you have without being ridiculous. You might think you've got years to go. But it makes me stop and think, I'm not going to sit in the lounge room and watch everyone. I'm actually still going to keep doing what I love and enjoy as well. But you take the extra precautions now. You're a bit more aware of what could happen. And the other thing that kicks in is it's not just you now. It's your family around, you know, what they go through as well. Yeah, that's so true. So true. Do you have any advice for others who still have that that travel bug in their system? Yeah, any advice that you could give to people? I hope it's to drink more water. <laughs> That's number one. Every time um, I go away, uh, my ex-neighbour says, how much water have you got? Have you drank enough water? Is always on my back. But it's be prepared. Let people know where you're going because that's one of my other downfalls. A lot of places I've been to and I think I shouldn't go any further because nobody knows I'm here. Let people know where you're going. Um, I always have my HEMA map so I know where I am because a lot of places I don't have reception. But, yeah, be wary, be prepared and let someone know where you are. 
You are a real adventurer, Shirley. I, I'm not that far behind you in terms of years, but I certainly hope that I can be as adventurous and courageous as you mm-hmm. are. I think it's I just think it's wonderful. And thank you for sharing your story and also mm-hmm. your words of advice. I really appreciate it. I think a lot of people, if they think of four-wheel driving, you're going for the extreme adventure, doing things um, like Cape York, doing um, gunshot, doing what, but I... I utilise four-wheel driving to get me to places that a normal conventional car, because the sights are so much different. This, it, it's, it's unreal out there. It's just the colours, the wildlife, the bird life. It, it's just something you can't explain. And in your swag, looking up that black sky with all those stars, there's nothing like it, nothing like it. I wish you many more years of travelling, Shirley. Thank you so much. And and just a big thanks to the Royal Flying Doctor. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.